What is the value of premarital counseling? Why try to fix something that isn't broken? Are there enduring behavioral quirks that arise within a budding relationship that may one day morph into larger, more entrenched problems? Today, we speak again with Stephanie Hanger, licensed marriage and family therapist, who will discuss issues such as negative body language, keeping score, and how to listen deeply to your partner. In addition, we will examine the emotional dance that happens between new and more experienced couples, as well as methods for increasing intimacy and the notion that couples counseling can, in fact, aid us in ascertaining how we have grown or will grow as a result of being in relationship. Also, and finally, what do we do when the honeymoon period is over and we realize that instead of finding our soulmate, we have, in fact, married a human being? My name is Benjamin Rusick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Ben. Who are you? What's your, what are your credentials? Why are you here? I'm a licensed clinical therapist here in San Francisco, and I'm particularly interested in working with couples, premarital couples, um, seems to be the niche that I'm most drawn to. And it's mostly because I want to help people set themselves up to feel really good in relationship as soon as possible. And we will be talking, yes, about premarital counseling. And we went over in the beginning what we'll be looking at. Well, first we have to differentiate the diff- what is premarital counseling and what's how is that different from regular count- couples counseling. The value of coming in early in your relationship to therapy, how we grow in relationships, and how that sets us up for success in other relationships, such as friendships or family members, etc. Ultimately, how to learn to accept ourselves as we are. Ultimately, ironically, I suppose, not being dependent on others to feel good, even though here we are talking about couples counseling. <laughs> right? That's ironic, isn't it? It is ironic because actually in order to grow as a person, the best way to do that is in relationship with others. There is a, a type of dependency that's really quite healthy in all relationships. My sense is there's a real stigma around couples counseling that people in general have this belief that they're going to find someone and they're going to fall in love and there's going to be this chemistry and all of that is going to point in the direction of yes, this is a good thing. Like we're sailing off into the sunset forever and it should all work out without really considering like what goes into taking care of a relationship after the initial excitement. Because a lot of people have this belief that if they have to go to counseling before they actually get married and like sail off into the sunset, that's a sign that there's a problem and that maybe they shouldn't be together. In actuality, when they take the time to look at how being together feels so good for both of them and they start to understand what they're both bringing into the relationship, not just the the positive qualities, they're also bringing in their family histories with them. They're bringing in different systems. They're bringing in things that are going to conflicting. Sooner that you can realize that and find a way to uh, leverage that between two people, the easier it is to move forward. You already kind of know what's going on. You, you have a sense of yourself. You have a sense of the other person. And it can set you up for a really good experience. I hear this with all even my individual sessions. They all complain about the fact that their spouse is essentially a human being. <laughs> and the thing is that... <laughs> It's like in the first three months, what I tell people, and I'm not necessarily religious, but the metaphor I hope will work, that in the first three months of a relationship, they call it the honeymoon period. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's like God is taking care of you or hormones are taking care of you yeah. or whatever innate mechanisms we have is taking care of you. And everyone thinks, oh my God, this is so amazing. This person is so much better than all the other people I've been with because they're not they're not really like that. And so um, Robert Johnson, who's a, a Jungian analyst, he talked about how our inner gold, and that means our inner gold is our best qualities, the best things about ourselves. And that when we fall in love, we project our gold onto other people. And we are essentially falling in love with parts of ourselves. My therapist, who was, I think, maybe his early 80s when this happened, he said his wife looked at him one day and said, you know, it took me almost three years to realize that you weren't God. And what she meant was not that he was someone that she worshipped, but he was fallible, he was human. That seems to me to be the number one thing that trips people up, is they're coming to terms with the fact that this person is not who they thought they were. And then they don't know how to handle it, and they don't know what to do. There is some of that experience of like, you aren't who I thought you were. I also think that people get into relationships and they find out that they aren't who they thought they were either. Ooh, I hadn't thought of that. They, 
they actually don't know themselves as well as they believe they did. Reality is we're always changing. Right? We're growing. You at age 10 is not you now. Myself at age 22 is not myself now. There's some general parts of us that sort of stay solid, consistent, but our interests change, our education, our experiences start to weigh in on us. And, and we, we also are surprised to find that we're different. What happens is we stop telling each other how we're changing. We become really comfortable with this idea that we're supposed to know what the other one's doing or the other one's supposed to know what we're doing. And there's not a lot of crosstalk. Mm -hmm. We get into these habitual patterns of expecting things from each other and ourselves. And then one day we wake up and we say, we're incompatible or I don't know you anymore. But you don't wake up and just not know somebody. It's like people who go on a diet. They didn't just wake up one day and they gained an extra 35 pounds. Unless that was happening all along. Me. <laughs> that was happening all along. They just weren't noticing it. So part of the value, I think, of couples therapy early is bringing people's awareness to noticing, mm -hmm. noticing themselves, noticing each other. What are some of the interventions that you use in your practice? The earliest value of coming into therapy for couples is understanding what their unique dynamic is. How do they dance emotionally with each other? What do they? What are their needs? What are they saying to each other? What gets triggered? Who pushes and who pulls? That's something that's actually quite definable. It's a conversation you can have with them and that they can have with each other. And it's really helping them understand the underlying emotional responses that they have to each other's needs. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you do like psychodynamic stuff where you look at their childhoods and look at their underlying issues and that kind of thing? Yeah, when I work with a premarital couple, I like to tell them to expect maybe about 10 to 12 weeks of time together. I look at it as sort of a little bit of a solution-focused, goal-oriented agreement contract between us. We're looking a little bit at their family systems. We do something like a genogram, which is a pictorial diagram looking at extended family expectations and how they learn, what rules they learned about being in relationships with each other. Try to help them understand what their love languages are. So this is premarital now. You're into that. This is premarital. Okay, so... I think we do need to define what that means really quickly. Like Premarital means that you've been with somebody for some period of time. You're excited about the relationship, but you're starting to notice that things aren't as glorious as they were those first three months. Okay. Right, the shine starts to rub off a little bit on the other person and on the relationship in general. And you start to have doubts. You, have to, you start to question like, I think I want to be with this person. I think I want to move forward. I'm not really sure. Like I can't imagine anybody else but this isn't as perfect as it was six months ago. Okay, and so they're about to get married, I'm assuming. Somebody's proposed. Somebody Somebody's made proposed. That they're, they're thinking about it even. They're even considering marriage. Okay. But there's this hesitation. There's this, it's not perfect enough. Got it. So you talked about the value of coming in early and one of the, uh, coming in early in the, in the marriage or before it is that you learn each other's dance. Can you say more about that? So every person has an emotional dance between them where they're very aware of like things that are said or done that that trigger something in them, whether it's like excitement or joy or it's it's disgust or anger. Mm -hmm. And it's it's early. It's and it's probably in almost every relationship you have with anybody you're intimate with, including family and close friends. Mm -hmm. But with an intimate partner, the stakes are higher. Mm -hmm. So being able to identify what that emotional dance is what it means when your partner shrugs their shoulders after you've asked them to help with something. Oh, good. That's a nice one. And how would you, what would you, so when someone shrugs their shoulders, what does that usually mean? It depends on who's shrugging their shoulders. If it's the, if it's a, a heterosexual couple, the females asked for something like, can you take this out? <laughs> can you help me with something? And her partner says, sure, and kind of shrugs her shoulders. A lot of times for women, that's interpreted as uh, you don't want to help me or you don't care about me mm -hmm. or this isn't important to you. It's an assumption that's being made. When in general, it could be that the partner is like, sure, whatever. Like, I don't care. This is no big deal. It's easy for me. But we're very quick to make judgments about what's that body language mean. And a lot of it is based on how we experienced our primary caregivers. Right. You know, if dad shrugged his shoulders every time he was mad at mom, then we're going to assume that something our partner does is something that we're familiar with and we're going to assign a meaning to it. Got it. It's really important early on to diffuse it by really asking, like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And even if it doesn't mean what you think it does, what happens for you? What are you making meaning of it? And then how are you responding to it? Right. So in that case, the female might see her partner respond with a shoulder shrug and she could do a couple things. She could either get angry. Right. She could pull away. Right. It, that that starts, starts to create the dance. dance. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, she, that, that, now the, the emotional piece is in play. Right. And then he's like, 
oh, she's pulling away. Why is she treating me like this? I didn't do anything. All I did was take out the trash. Exactly. That, that so-and-so, my God. And then he gets, and then maybe his response is to stonewall her further, which for her perfectly meshes with his shrugging of the shoulders. And so she's taken the shrugging of the shoulders and his stonewalling, and which stonewalling, stonewalling means like you don't communicate and you shut down. And she's put that together and like, this is, why is he, why is he treating me so poorly when really it's this, it's, it's crazy making. It, it, it's it's just a miscommunication. Yeah, I often tell my couples, I'm like, oftentimes when they come in, I say, well, let's autopsy a fight. I love doing that. It's like it's like looking at like a, you go to go to a boxing match and you're like, okay, see that right hook? <laughs> right, and the Gottman Institute does this well. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I say is like, you know, your partner, you can ask your partner questions like, what did you mean when you shrugged your shoulders like what was going through your head or what were you feeling because I, I don't know there's of course timing it's like you don't necessarily ask that in the moment but let's say your partner does something untoward at least you perceive them as doing such and then you kind of watch them take a break wait till they're in a receptive state go talk to them about i don't know dinner and um and then say hey by the way i have just one question the earlier i i just was wondering what 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 was going on for you when you did that because i i'm not sure i got it and i i'm not upset i just don't understand so could you maybe explain it well, even as I hear you say that, Ben, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, that's a really healthy, self-assured person who has the confidence to, to approach a partner with this open curiosity. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, most people don't do that. That's not where they go to. What do they do? If their experience around feeling safe and feeling love is to go away and avoid difficult conversations as a way to to avoid ruptures because they've never seen what it looks like to have resolution. Right. They may never approach their partner. Mm-hmm. That incident happens and they just go away and they sort of bury it, mm. which is something I see with a lot of people. They just sort of bury whatever's going on because they're afraid if they really bring it up and address it, it's going to cause more conflict. It's going to create more tension mm-hmm. and that's more painful. Which is probably what happened in their family of origin that you clammed up because if you you know did anything the stone giants would come out and start hurling their rocks and the whole house would come down possibly and so the emotional piece really helping couples slow down Mm -hmm. and just stay as curious as possible can be helpful the one experience i've had that seems to make a bit of a difference between premarital couples and just couples coming in for counseling Mm -hmm. is premarital couples are often still really connected around a hopefulness, Mm. a fantasy of what's possible in their relationship. And because of the goodwill, Uh they're willing to invest. I see a lot of that when couples come in and they're in bad shape. It's like they've lost hope and they even have contempt for each other. I think Malcolm Gladwell, the author uh, in his book Blink, he talked about how they'd have people watch a video of, of a couple having an argument and they would actually turn the volume off or they would just muffle the sound so you could just hear the tone of voice. And they guessed with something like an some extraordinarily high amount of accuracy, I think over 80%, which ones were going to break up. And the number one he found thing found was was contempt, that when the partners had contempt for each other, their relationship was doomed. So the value of premarital counseling is that it's like when somebody comes in to have their you know, their car fixed and it's like the transmission is, is, is in shambles and maybe the wheels are falling off and it's like, well, what do you want to do with this? Uh, I don't mean to sound cynical, but people don't come to a couple's counselor until it's an emergency, until the car clearly, yes. you know, somebody's been unfaithful, there's really bitter disputes about money or childcare and oh my God. <laughs> and the, the focus is only on the problem at that point. Right. And when you have two people just focusing, like putting all their energy on the problem, it just it seems to attract more of that energy. That's an interesting key talk more about that when couples wait until like their like their negative dynamic becomes so embedded Mm -hmm. they can't see anything else it's really hard for them to reconnect around playfulness it's really hard for them to reconnect around goodwill with each other Mm -hmm. because they're now in a race to the bottom of who's more right and part of them coming in is they're both hoping that the counselor is going to side with one of them Oh, man. To prove the other one wrong. Do I ever feel, do I ever get that? It's almost like trying to um, mediate between two children who are fighting over the same toy. It truly is. It is. <laughs> um, one of the interventions that I use in lieu of, I think your your hope, your discussion about hope is really, really perfect, is I do two things. I do appreciations and what's working. So yeah. I, I asked the couples, I asked one person to say, what do you appreciate about so-and-so? And then also, like I had a couple come in last week and they had this horrendous fight and they said, but we worked it out. And I said, well, okay, well, let's talk about how you worked it out. We want to talk about the fight. Like, no, let's, I don't care about the fight. Let's talk about what you did that worked. What worked? Yeah. And they kind of went through <laughs> it. And I'm hoping that that will amplify 
like fights that work, you know, that, that they're like little jewels. Like we don't, we don't focus, we focus on the negative. We keep score of like, oh, I got, I took this hit, I took that hit. Nobody keeps track of what worked. Well, that's because the negative is often associated with a sense of fear. Something feels unsafe. Right. And we are biologically programmed to tune in to fear first, to tune into what feels unsafe mm -hmm. as a way to always seek safety. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when something painful happens, it triggers that part of our brain of like, uh-oh, you're not safe. This is not safe. Right. And we get very fixated on that. When in reality, if we just step back a little bit and ask ourselves, is this truly an unsafe situation? It might feel that way, but that's not usually the case anymore. Mm -hmm. We're operating from a very primitive part of ourselves at that point. How do you get clients to differentiate between what is theirs and what's really in the argument, like what they're bringing to the baggage that they're bringing and what's really happening in the room. So that's the usefulness of slowing them down in the session and really asking them each to talk about what's going on sort of internally. If they can use their bodies as a guide, they can feel the tension in their body, they can feel the constriction going on around their chest. As soon as you can get them to tune into sort of what's there in the present moment and talk from that place, they're really just talking about what's going on for them specifically. And it's no longer about the issue. It's no longer about the content. When you can get two people to really hear each other in the now, it becomes less volatile because that's absolutely true for you. If you say, my stomach is in knots and my heart is pounding and I'm sweating, and you're not blaming anybody. That's just what's happening for you. That's the experience you're having. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, couples that feel a fair amount of empathy and like care for one another can really hear each other in that moment. One of the interventions you're saying is that when someone's in a fight or an argument, they can just name their experience instead of saying, you did this, you did that. But just like, I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling, I'm feeling constricted. I'm feeling claustrophobic. I'm feeling panicked. I'm having this experience sort of pushes the empathy button. Do you think that empathy kind of leaves the room when arguments start oftentimes? It depends on how the argument is started. If the argument starts, you make me feel, right. or this makes me feel, right then th there's an, an accusation that I'm feeling this way, but I am i can't be with what I'm feeling and it, something's causing me to feel this way and it's not me. So there's a an unspoken experience where the other person hears it as judgment or an attack or mm -hmm. blame. And so what you're saying is that a lot of these problems when people are premarital are just not as acute. Yes. And that is an amazing thing because we can get we can help the patient early. Um, one of the things I tell my clients is that when they do an unhealthy thing that's kind of small, like like let's say if somebody is dismissive of somebody else's feelings in a way that's not it's kind of minor and they don't or they don't listen to the, the information. And it's like, okay, so you your wife told you pretty clearly that she needed help um, with XYZ and you kind of brushed it off. So what happens when you guys have children and something really, really important is on the line and she needs your help and you've checked out? And so a lot of times I'll look at the smaller, they're almost like little algorithms of behavior. Mm -hmm. And then, but people take those little algorithms and they put them onto like some really serious, serious stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just tragic. I call that algorithm an assumption. Perfect. We make a lot of assumptions. Mm -hmm. We take past experiences mm -hmm. and we apply them to the now, even if they're not true. Mm -hmm. Because we're always seeking safety. And if mm -hmm. we've had something happen and it hasn't been resolved, there's this tendency for us to go back to something we know, even if it's not true. Okay. Because it feels familiar and we all want to we all want to feel good about something in ourselves. And if we think we can predict the future with some information from the past, we'll use it. The interesting thing, the irony to it is that in the very action of trying to predict based on the past, we almost recreate it. Can so you use this example? of the of somebody about needing someone else to show up for them a couple's together maybe he drops her totally unintentionally she feels not considered she feels not important she assumes that's what's going to happen in the future so something comes up in the future they have kids together it's a big deal and she's already preparing herself to be dropped because she's, she's assuming that this is the algorithm. This is yes. the way it's going to go. I see. Okay. And so by assuming it ahead of time, it almost by nature creates the experience Whoa. because she's already focusing on it. She's looking for it. She's waiting for it. Ouch. So there's no chance for an, any other scenario to happen. What kind of successes have you seen in premarital counseling? What do you mean by success? Like, what is? Well, that's a good question. What do I mean by that? I have couples come in, and usually, if there's a substance abuse issue, you it's really measurable. Mm -hmm. And usually, what it is is that the other partner person has become traumatized by the person's substance abuse and doesn't actually know it and doesn't actually understand their addiction. So, resolution or success for me is an understanding of actually what's going on with both parties. 
that they're having these total separate experiences of this one person's substance issue, and it's finally out on the table. So that to me is a success. I suppose a success would be an increase in empathy, an increase in intimacy, a decrease in the amount of times that they fight, though my therapist wished everyone a happy fighting marriage. God bless him for saying that. Just a more comfortable, like dances that work. Like the, you talk about the negative dance, but like they, like they come in the room and in my in the studio where there's a long couch here, it's like, I don't know, what, 12 feet? Like this couple, they come in and she sits on one end and he sits all the way on the other. And it's even though it's passive, it's like, wow, that's pretty intense. And you have to keep in mind that we're all very individual and what attracts us to somebody. Like in that case, that couple could have a very high tolerance for distance between them. And that's what's comfortable for them. That actually is what makes it easy for them to be together. Right. So when I think of success for premarital couples, I like to think of it in a couple of ways. One is it's it's almost like anyone who actively makes a choice to do something for themselves ahead of time, mm-hmm. it almost sets them up to believe that anything is possible for them. It's like the person who decides to start going to the gym and pretty soon they start feeling better and they might not really like the gym, but they can see some results and it, and it sort of feeds on itself. It's similar with premarital counseling. The more comfortable you get talking about the things that are uncomfortable, okay. the easier it is to talk about anything. The other thing that I think is really valuable and important to highlight here in our culture right now, divorce rate is high. Yeah, It's still over 50%. Even though there's other figures that say it's coming down, I'm not sure it's coming down as much as people are just avoiding marriage. <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent point. And if you're coming down from 50%, you're still in a lot of trouble. Like if, oh, now it's at 48%. <laughs> yeah, so what? <laughs> Divorce is incredibly, it's not only painful for everybody involved, for all the parties, not just for the couple, but for extended family, if there's children, if there's community, it's it's really hard mm-hmm. to go through the separation process. And, and there's a lot of finger pointing and often can be really uncomfortable, even though there's great mediation out there now. The other thing is it's incredibly expensive. A lot of couples who go through that in hindsight will report and there's a great book the legacy of divorce Mm -hmm. written years ago was a ethnographic study over like 35 years i think Mm -hmm. a lot of times people in hindsight would go back after they'd gotten divorced maybe gotten remarried or got and realized how much they actually really cared and appreciated their first spouse in the beginning but they couldn't see it they missed it they got so mired in the disillusion and the anger and the hopelessness that they couldn't see the positive. They couldn't see what worked. They couldn't focus on what was really happening for them at the time. Really many times regretting that they didn't figure out a way to work through it. Whereas when you invest in something early on and you build a sense of confidence in yourself that you can talk about the hard stuff, that you know the hard stuff is coming. It's not that it's not going to get hard by going to premarital counseling. It's that it is going to be hard. You're already in the process of knowing that like it's going to be hard and we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to avoid the conversation. We don't have to be careful not to step on each other's toes because we love each other. It's more like we're going to step on each other's toes. We know that. And it's not because we don't care. It's because we do care. Why do you think the divorce rate is so high? I really believe it's because people go in to relationships with this expectation that this must be the person for me. And there's an assumption that it should just work out because they felt all that excitement. They felt all of that energy. But they didn't really recognize that in any relationship, any good relationship, it requires hard work. It really requires for us to look at ourselves over time consistently, to keep asking ourselves, how am I changing? How's my partner changing? Mm -hmm. What's different with them? What's different with me? How am I communicating that to them? How am I asking them about them? And a lot of times we just stop doing that. We we really do take each other for granted. And one Mm -hmm. day we wake up and we're like, it's over. Mm -hmm. It's because we haven't been paying attention along the way. Mm -hmm. We haven't actively been trying to connect. We haven't Mm -hmm. actively been trying to stay present with each other. Mm -hmm. One of the things our culture suffers from is a um, lack of interpersonal work. We don't value inner work. We value outer work. Outer work, by outer work, I mean like building things, creating things, writing things, making lots of money, the stuff of the world. But when it comes to interpersonal, the invisible, it's just like, well, we can't see it, so it must not exist. Or it could be so hard to look at the interpersonal because it's scary. Yeah. It's scary to look at oneself and get in touch with the parts of us that we don't quite know how to be with yet. I wonder if, what are the marriage rate, divorce rates in other countries, I wonder, compared to the United States? That's a great question, actually. I was just thinking that myself. And I don't know. I know that divorce rates actually are increasing in other Western countries, uh-huh. especially countries that are really moving more towards highly capitalistic cultures. Because, the, again, the, the focus becomes on the external and not the internal. Mm-hmm. 
and the pressure, especially, you know, here we are in San Francisco. It's a beautiful city. It's a world-class city. I mean, there's nothing that you could want for in this city except connection. <laughs> except everything. Yeah, I was on the I was on the bus. I take the Muni a lot and the people there are so shut down. Everyone is so shut down. And like this guy walked on the bus today and he kind of walks on the bus. He goes, "Humpty Dumpty had a great fall." And he's completely kind of out of his gourd, but he was kind of wonderful. It's amazing how people just shun him. Yeah. And and it's right. like I know he's a little nuts, but he's harmless and he's kind of funny and he's kind of cool and he actually sounded like he was really quite brilliant. But we don't nobody wants to talk to anybody Mm -mm. and there's and there's really no need to because you have something with you that resides in your pocket that gives you some reflection of yourself the way you want to see yourself (laughs) which makes it which makes it challenging to be in a relationship because the culture is actually moving away from connection not toward connection i think this can get into how we grow in relationships because we've clearly what we've we've clearly covered is how our own personal stuff comes up and gets in the way. When people are forced to reckon with the internal world, they must grow as people. I would say that's a that's a given, yeah? Mm-hmm. So, I would say so, yeah. What would you like to talk about in terms of how we grow that we have not yet covered? You talked about the, the value of acknowledging, valuing yourself and valuing others. We're all always moving through these developmental cycles. There's you're born, you go through infancy, toddlerhood, childhood, adolescence. And if you think back, you can have these clear points in your life where you can remember yourself literally like changing. Puberty, dating, graduating from school, going on to something else, meeting somebody, having jobs. So when you acknowledge that you're always changing, you're always growing, you're always developing, you're maturing, you can assume that for as long as you're going to live, that's going to continue to some extent in some form. Mm-hmm. And there's a great there's a great book that talks about this um, midlife something, but it looks at how over time, as we naturally our bodies change and testosterone goes down in men, and estrogen increases, you see men getting into their forties and fifties and wanting to cook, and wanting to garden and wanting to do things that they had no interest in in their twenties and thirties, and you see women who are homemakers and caregivers and child raisers in their 20s and 30s when they were in sort of the the prime of their estrogen years, they get into their 40s and 50s and they become more interested in their careers. They have higher levels of testosterone. They don't want to be cooking anymore. They, they, They kind of switch positions oftentimes. So there's a way that we naturally are going to be trying to create a fuller version of ourselves for as long as we're here. If that's true, and we're trying to learn to accept ourselves through those processes, it helps when we have somebody by our side. It helps to have a life witness through these transitions, through these developmental phases. Really being comfortable getting to know yourself, knowing what's going on for you, understanding what you need at different times, being able to talk about that with somebody else, can really build a sense of resilience of like, it's okay. It's okay for me to grow. It's okay for me to change. It's okay for me to have new interests. It's okay for me to stop doing this. Or to fail. It's okay to fail. That's another great one. Actually, it's not even about failure. It's just about experience. Mm -hmm. Good or bad, up or down, right or wrong. If if we didn't judge it, if it just is what it is, Mm -hmm. it allows us to just keep going, Mm -hmm. to keep staying open to what else is coming, to what Mm -hmm. else is possible. Mm And when we're in relationship with others, it allows us to feel sort of more, I think, secure within ourselves to challenge ourselves to try new things, to do new things, to go to new heights, to let go, to know somebody's there, that we have a, a safe landing place. That's pretty cool, Stephanie. Yeah. Do you ever watch what's the movie with Tom Cruise and is it Renee Zellweger? I don't know the names of people in movies. <laughs> Who was it? Who was it? I totally messed up. Is this up. Jerry Maguire? Yeah. Okay. Is that is that her? Is yeah. That, okay. Wow. I got it. I can't believe it. <laughs> I'm the most ignorant of pop culture. Kudos to you, Ben. Kudos. Wow. And they they use this line a lot in the movie. You complete me. You know. You complete me. And I think that that's kind of a. It's kind of the romantic version of like you know you, I'm going to feel whole if I have this person. But I think what you're talking about is a wholeness that's much deeper and much more subtle of of support in areas in a sense we are kind of complementary opposites and we kind of build a a thing and we do become completed but just not in the way we thought yes and it's not that the other person completes us it's that when we feel like we have somebody who who accepts us as we're trying to accept ourselves we get to feel more complete 
as ourselves. Uh-huh. Wow. Jeez. I wish you could have been my couples therapist. Actually, no, because I'd still be with that person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but who knows? Good. Maybe that's what you, that's, maybe that was intended. Do you ever find that, um, this is kind of a sidebar, that, that, that couples therapy speeds up whatever unconscious processes are already at work? For instance, if the couple is sort of moving towards breaking up, that couples therapy will hasten that? Um, I think that's the fear, actually. I think that's the fear that keeps people from coming in mm-hmm. is that they know that there's somewhere they're getting stuck. Mm-hmm. There's somewhere that they can't quite move through something that they're that their need they both have needs and they can't quite find a way to get those needs met and they keep expecting the other person to to meet the need when really they just need to be able to find a way to meet the need themselves. And I don't mean that give it to themselves, but find a way to get it that doesn't rely exclusively on the other person. Okay. I actually think that people who come in, people who've been together for some period of time, and I would say anywhere between like, you know, a year and two years, because at that point, you've probably passed the honeymoon phase and you're, you've, you've learned to sort of spend time and invest in this person through their humanness to some extent, and you're still with them. You, you're invested, they're invested. And the fact that you were really like attracted to each other in the beginning and really interested in each other, that, that tells me that there's something unique about the two of you, that there's a lot of potential for growth. Whether or not you actually stay together or not, it's more about how do you allow this other person to trigger these deep parts of you that want to be seen or want to be acknowledged or want to be accepted, whether or not they accept it, as a way for you to become a fuller version, like seeing the other person as a catalyst for your own growth and vice versa. And you might get to a point where you realize it's not that you're not compatible. You just don't really share enough interest that you want to move forward in the same way. You know, he wants to have kids and she doesn't, mm-hmm. or she wants to travel the world and he never wants to leave home. Like mm-hmm. those are some pretty big value differences that mm-hmm. might not make for a very compatible couple. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that the breakup has to be this hostile, like you never and you always, and we can't we can't ever have a conversation again. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be neat? If couples could get to a a resolution where they're like, wow, I really had to grow in these ways and you really had to grow in these ways and I got here and you got there and I'm so clear that I never want to leave the country and you're so clear that you only want to travel the world and I'm really going to miss you because you're great and you're really going to miss me, but we're really not meant to be together Okay. versus this this focus on who did what to who and how everybody is culpable for somebody else's pain. Right, we're all we we all experience pain. People will trigger our pain, but it's our pain. It's nobody nobody's actually trying to create pain in us. We mm-hmm. just feel it. I, I really like the idea of like being comfortable with yourself. Just a little background on me. I used to be about a hundred pounds heavier. I've struggled with weight my whole life and my self image is not great. I would say that I'd suffer from a significant amount of body dysmorphia, which means I look at a body part and I think, oh God, I'm really overweight and look at that and look at that bulge and look at that this and look at that that. And I've got this friend, in my opinion, probably one of the best looking human beings I've ever seen. Well, she's not my girlfriend, but she treats me really, really well. And she's always, she's always complimenting me on like, you look good. And, and, and I get this moment of cognitive dissonance. It's like, why is this person who's clearly more just intensely attractive think that I'm actually attractive. This doesn't make any sense to me. And she knows that, that I have a thing about that. So she kind of hammers it in a little bit. It really has a, had a marvelous effect on me. I'm a lot less insecure. It was, it was struggling with the dissonance of hearing that from someone and, and having that bounce against my own beliefs about myself and kind of go, having a little explosion. And enough of those explosions, I kind of, there was a, there was a change. There is something so valuable about feeling accepted, especially in relationship. One of the favorite lines that I heard, I don't know where I read this somewhere, was it was about a man and a woman and she was feeling insecure about her body and she was wearing something and she had said something about her muffin top showing over her pants. And her partner said, what? Muffin top? That's the best part of the muffin. <laughs> you know what a great response to somebody that's, who's feeling. But it's even true. It is the best part of the it muffin. It is the best part, you know? It's like the icing on the cupcake. That's amazing. It's always the fat, the, the fattest part, right? The most fattening part is the icing, but it's the best part. Jesus. But when we start looking for what's great about each other and uh, about ourselves, it really can change the way we see ourselves and the way we feel seen by the person that we 
need to feel safest with. I wasn't going to end on this, but I think it's better to end on it because it's a little lighter. This is not so much about our relationships, but when we take what we've learned in our interpersonal relationships with our significant other, and we learn to do things like expand our community, build our community, deepen the friendships that we already have, deepen the connections between other yourself and other family members, your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, whoever. When you go to couples therapy, you're not just preparing for your, in premarital counseling, you're not just preparing for marriage, even though you are. You are preparing for yourself to improve yourself and you're also preparing for all the relationships you'll ever have in your whole life because i mean learning a communication skill like uh one of the one of the one of the communication skills that i teach and i'm sure you teach a version of this is when you make the one partner like when one partner is upset and they say their thing or whatever and you say so listen tell me what that person said well i don't like well i'm not interested in what you didn't like i want you to actually literally say what that person said or at least paraphrase it to make sure that you heard it now, there's nobody that can tell me that that skill ain't useful all over the place. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I've had it like, you know, when a, a, a boss was pissed off at me and I was just, I just used to reflect. So you're saying that I did this and this and this and this and this, and you kind of want to, you're not sure whether or not you should fire me. Yes, you're exactly right. Oh, okay. And was there any, did I miss any of that? Is that all correct? No, you got it. I, I'm glad you, at least you're taking it in. That's, this is good news. <laughs> <laughs> I truly believe that that premarital counseling, any counseling, but premarital in particular, you're coming in with a desire of wanting it to work. To me, that's different than when you come in for almost anything else and you're upset because something isn't working. So you're already coming in with a mindset of how to make something that's working or something you care about work better. How can you understand it more? How can you understand yourself more? And it feeds on itself. Mm-hmm. And as you get more comfortable talking about your needs and listening to what your partner needs, you get better at doing that everywhere because you get to practice it, Mm -hmm. right? How great that you have someone to practice it with Mm -hmm. because the more you're practicing it, the more you're comfortable doing it everywhere. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. more you're letting everybody know what's going on for you, how you're handling things, the more you're listening to what other people are saying. And that doesn't mean that other people in your life, other people in different relationships, siblings, you know, parents, coworkers, whatever, are going to be able to respond to you the way your partner is. Mm-hmm. What is important about that, though, is that you're going into it with a sense of confidence about yourself of like, I know how to listen and I know how to speak what's true for me mm-hmm. in a way that you don't get pulled into whatever is going on for the other person as much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a lot of control over how you want to be in relationship with yourself and anybody because you ultimately have the choice. But you have to be aware first. The first step is you have to be aware of what it is that's going on for you. Mm-hmm. What the need is, what the assumption is, what the fear is, so that you can be with that in a new way, with a very accepting lens. Mm-hmm. For those of you listening at home, if you want to have some fun, if you have the opportunity, listen to two therapists have a casual conversation. They are so... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's great. I don't even know how to explain it. Like they just they're so talking about well this is how i'm feeling and i felt this way about this and and it's they they i don't know how do i explain that what is it like to hear two therapists talk it's like listening to two priests talk i suppose they maybe <laughs> it's a, it, but it's an emotional language. but they're so clear about everything they say and they're so careful to to, to they're always checking like did you understand what I, when I said such and such, I meant such and such. Did that come across clearly? And they'll say, you know, a few minutes ago I said such and such, and I'm concerned that I may have misrepresented myself. And this is what I actually meant. Is that, and they'll, and there's no, do you experience that ever when you talk to the therapists? Um, sometimes it depends on how aware I am of what's going on for me in the moment. I will say that sometimes it can feel too, like almost overly considerate or overly, Sort of syrupy. Yeah, or t- uh, it gets too serious. There's like, there. I want to keep banter in relationships. I want to keep it playful. Yeah. And when everybody's like, it's a analysis paralysis. <laughs> and so I, when I'm working with couples, I want to find ways for them to not be thinking as much. Oh, okay. To think less. Analysis paralysis. I'm gonna remember that. I want them to remember that their ego is not their amigo, and that if they can stay present it can become more creative and more fun. And I, and I liken it to improv mm-hmm. in this way of the yes and. 
Can you say what that is? The improv and yes and I don't think everyone knows what you that know, is. You know, I've recently started taking different improv classes. There's a lot not of, comedy, but like the actual acting class. Yeah, the acting where people associate it's, that. It's with all comedy. about trying to be present with what is uh-huh. and not trying to predict or think about what you're going to say ahead of time. Uh-huh. It's to allow for a more fluid experience in life of what's coming up for me right now. What what hits me right now? And then how do you bring that into an experience with another person mm-hmm. where they're playing. You're now playing off of each other. It's like you're literally creating a game in the moment mm-hmm. and you're just feeding off it. Have you ever sat in a, an experience with somebody, even as a kid, where someone's like, hey, let's play this game. And you're like, I don't know how to play it. Well, okay, I'll be this and you be that. And literally in the moment, okay, then I'm going to do this. Okay, if you're going to do this, I'm going to do that. And you think of it as like there's no rules, but it becomes more and more fun because you're making it up. It's like make believe as you go. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's really possible in relationships with people if they if we can stay really present with yes and so you would say something to me like Stephanie I'm going to go get lunch right now do you want to come and I would say and even if I had brought lunch with me I'd say well yes I would like to join you for lunch and I've already brought mine can I bring it can can I bring it with me and you'd say you'd say yes you can bring it with you can I have some of it and I'd say <laughs> yes but I have to make sure you don't have any allergies because I have shelf it. You know, and it's it's just building. It's mm-hmm. just encouraging each other. Yeah, I would to, be totally different. I'd say, no, you can't have any of my lunch. Right. <laughs> right. It's like it's, it's like a couple. A couple. Somebody comes home and and she says, "Can you help me with the dishes?" And he might be feeling really tired, and he can say, "Yes." And can we take fifteen minutes to sit and rest first? That's a nice one. And then she said, and then she says, "Okay, that's great." And they sit and rest. And he says, "After dishes, can we make out?" And she's feeling like she has a headache. And she said, "Yes." And can you help give me a massage first so I can relax? And he says, "Yeah." Like it's yes anding each other. Yes anding. Yes anding. That's a nice tool. I like that. Yeah. Do you have any other cool little tools you'd like to share with the universe? <laughs> I have all kinds of tools. Well, let's talk about them. We got a few minutes. Oh my goodness! I feel like with couples, like there, there's no limit. Because they come up with stuff all the time on their own. Mm-hmm. They come up with cute ways of connecting. Like what? Oh, I have a couple that comes in and they sit on opposite ends of the couch. And it's usually because they're both upset about something, but they haven't quite learned how to talk about what's upset. It's really vulnerable to talk about when you're upset. Because if you haven't had an experience growing up that someone can hear you, really listen to you when you're feeling upset, it can feel really risky to say, I'm upset because you're afraid the other person is going to be like, oh, you're upset. Well, let me tell you about me. And you just get shut down. And that's even more painful than just being upset. (laughs) So a lot of people just don't say anything. But this couple will come in and they'll be often upset and they'll sit on opposite ends of the couch. And we'll start sort of tuning into what's going on. And I can get them both at some point to tell me what's happening. And she'll tell me that she's feeling a little tense in her chest. And and he'll tell me that he's he can't stop thinking about work. And and there's all this like anxiousness. And as we start to settle, and, and I keep bringing them back, and I, I, I make them notice what they're doing with their bodies. One of them will start talking, and we'll start playing with their hair. And I'll say, do you notice you're playing with your hair as you're telling me about this? I wonder what's going on. And I just get them to really slow down and notice. People naturally use their bodies as a form of comfort when they're upset or they're scared or they're uncertain about something. And if you can watch them, if you can watch them jiggling their leg, the restless leg syndrome, or you can watch them fiddling their fingers, or you can watch and you can bring it to their attention, often they don't even realize that something's going on until you help them notice it. Mm-hmm. And this couple will come in, they will resist sort of getting comfortable with themselves at first and then as they get more and more comfortable in the session ironically they start to move towards each other they start to like move (laughs) towards the center of the couch literally move literally like they start to sort of like inch their way closer and closer because they you can see them feeling like it's safer and safer to get closer to somebody the more comfortable they get with themselves that's so cool and at some point one of them will like throw their legs up and the other one will like or they'll they'll start playing footsie you know, it's really sweet. Yeah. Uh, but it really requires that they both commit to giving themselves a space, which happens to be my office, where they're saying, we care enough to come in and make time for ourselves and each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I, I think, what premarital counseling can offer is a practice. Uh-huh. 
You know, you come in for 12 weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, every week, and you actively commit to practicing something with someone you want to be with. Yeah. And you get comfortable doing it. And you get comfortable doing it in a way that can be playful. It can be it can be hard. It can be sad at times. But you keep coming in. You keep doing it because you know that that's, that's a full life experience. Sadness, anger, joy, disgust. Mm-hmm celebration it's all in there mm-hmm. you're going to experience all of those things at some point ideally with somebody so why not practice doing it intentionally yeah uh in lieu of that body language i had one couple where the uh the female the, the, the wife would get really really upset with her husband when he explained stuff to her because she thought <laughs> he was being condescending Oh no. Which happens yeah, a lot, but it's not what he was doing. He would just sit there and try to figure things out kind of mathematically. And there was a certain way he used his hands in the air whenever he was doing that. Like he was trying to think with his fingers. Yeah. Right. And I said, look, when he's like think of it as a signal, you know, to like look look for that. Go on. I, I think there's a beautiful way of helping couples see each other with a lot of love. Right, by catching each other doing things, you know, and I try to encourage them to catch each other when she's stroking her hair. Ask mm-hmm. her, what's going on? I'm seeing you like play with your hair. What's mm-hmm. happening? You know, or when he's really tapping his leg, can you catch it? What's going on? You're really tapping it out there. Like, mm-hmm. what's happening? Do you ever teach couples to look for opportunities to increase intimacy in times where there's no conflict, where there's some sort of really special moment that's kind of happened upon them? Both? Oh, absolutely. And what does that look like? To build on it. When one, cu- one, when one person in the couple can really acknowledge the other one, let's say they come in and somebody's had a really great day and they're feeling it, mm-hmm. and the other person acknowledges them like, oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. I actually have the person who's having the great day stop and take it in. Mm-hmm. actually say thank you it feels so good to have you acknowledge me it feels mm-hmm. so good to have you here celebrating with mm-hmm. me so it's kind of like they train themselves to be nice to each other it's like you reward the person for the good behavior they're going to do it again and you're actively consciously taking it in and letting yourself feel is caring about you and somebody is making space for you in the moment let's end on building a community because at the end of the day in all of my experience of therapy, especially in substance abuse, I find that community seems to be the yeah, answer to I all of it. Like that all the therapy in the world, all the tools, all the things, but at the end of the day, if you've got somebody mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. talk to, you're, you're good. If you have support, you're good. If you know how to ask for help from your circle, you're good. So um, I guess asking for help would be one example. Uh, like in a relationship, if somebody has a difficult time asking for help, that one could you could you because it, it puts a it puts a, a a microscope on their patterns that they use everywhere else, and so if they could ask for help, they can start asking for help from their mom, from their cousin, from their neighbor, from whomever. That's sort yeah. of one example I think yeah. of how couples counseling could help you build community. Can you think of some others? Well, I like to think of couples as sort of the foundational fabric in all communities. Mm-hmm. That when couples feel really connected with each other and connected to themselves, it becomes much more comfortable for them to just be more out in the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. There's a, a trust that it's okay to depend on needing other people, period. Not that you need other people to survive, but it's okay to need. It's okay to ask for things. It's okay to have wants. Mm-hmm. I also see it as a way for people to feel just less alone in the world. I, I think of couples as being they're the the first line of defense they're the ones who are most likely going to have children they're the most they're the ones that are most likely going to um become parents together in the world that we live in right now really being able to feel like you can talk to other people about your experiences talk to them about what's happening feeling like you belong to something larger than just a dyad really increases a sense of safety for everybody mm-hmm, mm-hmm. all the way around mm-hmm. makes it easier for people to reach out to the homeless person at the end of the block because there's a sense that everybody sort of cares about what's going on and wants to actively do something together mm-hmm. i don't know it's it's not it feels less clear to me on how to answer that and it's more of just this felt sense i have mm-hmm. that that couples that feel good together and i don't mean feel good like they're a Cinderella story where they're just happily ever after. There is no such thing. What I mean is that 
couples feel safe enough in themselves to address any issue that's coming up with anybody. Well, listen, Miss Stephanie Hanger, I think we're about concluded. Once again, Stephanie Hanger, she's an MFT and she has offices in the Marina District of San Francisco. She's actually just down the hall from me. And often I have heard couples, I used to have an office right across from hers, and I don't think there was a appointment, a couple's appointment, where I didn't hear the couples laughing. And I didn't, and they would walk out of her office looking as though they just slept together. I mean, they looked great. Like, they looked happy, like they were skipping. I should have said this at the beginning of the thing, but they were just, they looked aglow. And so I can absolutely attest to Stephanie's talent at this work. So the only thing, since she's been telling you how to kind of get your proverbial S together during a relationship, the only thing that I'm going to tell y'all people to do is that if you're having a difficulty in a, in a relationship, go see this person. Listen, it's been a, a fabulous hour and uh, four minutes, um, which will probably be less than an hour and four minutes after I get done editing all my ums out. <laughs> I got a lot of ums. Did you know, I've been, I should have a little clicker for how many times I um in a session. This is this is called self acceptance. Is it? Yes. Uh, I get to edit it though. I get to. You can, you can edit your self acceptance out, but yeah. I was saying just allow for it. No, 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 no. I must be perfect. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta shine like the sun. All right. If uh, you're gonna shine like the sh- the sun, Ben, you've just got to be shameless about it. I'm pretty shameless. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty arrogant. I'm pretty like, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, you know me. I don't. Thank you, Ben, All for right, having me. So I appreciate much. it. Right. Thank you for listening. As always, pertinent information stemming from this podcast, including links and other resources, are available in the episode notes. Should you have any questions, feedback, or wish to be a guest on my podcast, I can be reached at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail.com. You can also reach me by going to my website at benjaminrusick.com. Lastly, I encourage you to subscribe. Thanks again, and remember, if your plate is full, sometimes you need to scrape a few things off to the side, and sometimes you just need a bigger plate.